Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we pull one out of the Patreon vault from all the way back in the month of May for this week's episode. We're going to be connecting quite a few notable ladies within the high society and heiress world. Today within our heiress tour, it is time to talk about some notable Astor women. Three of them, in fact, connected all to William Vincent Astor. We investigate William's mother, Ava Lowell Willing, his stepmother, Madeline Talmadge, and William Vincent Astor's third wife as well, Brooke Astor. Before we start this episode, I do have a spyglass here to give some huge thanks and praise to our latest supporters at patreon.com slash done and done. Big, big love, holy cats. Thanks to you, Karen A. and Stephanie D. Really grateful to you both and all of the investigators over there showing a little love to done and done for a few bucks a month. You'll get early and ad-free episodes and not done yet episodes too. Investigators, this is one of those today for this week's episode. Not done yet, straight out of Patreon. A little bit loose and more informal. It's where I talk about everything that doesn't seem to fit in the main episode of the week or included spiderwebs attached to that main episode of the week. This Not Done Yet was all the way back in May. Not Done Yet 44. We're on Not Done Yet 57. This week, we're coming with part two of Anna and Delphine Dodge. All kinds of good stuff. Within this episode, our Aster women, these three heiresses, our high society ladies, connect a whole lot of high society, royal connections, trashy divorces, and hot scandal too. I hope you enjoy it. Let's investigate. Hey, 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 investigators, it's Alicia here, and I am not done yet talking about William Vincent Astor, old Vinny. We have talked about the Vanderbilts a bunch. We have talked about Gilded Age Society. We have talked about Babe Paley and her two sisters, Betsy and Minnie, the Cushing sisters. There was no better perfect time to get back to William Vincent Astor to get into his backstory so full of spiderwebs, mostly attached to the women in his life. Within one of the most recent Not Done Yet's, we talked about his first wife, Helen, and his second wife, Minnie, but Vinny Astor has a mom and a stepmother for half a minute and a third wife, too, Brooke Astor. Wowza, so many layers. Let's investigate a little bit more about old Vinny Astor through the women in his life. Number one, his mama. This is Ava Willing, Astor Ribsdale, otherwise known as Lady Ribsdale, but that's not until her second marriage. Let's get her to her first marriage in delivering Vinny. Ava Lowell Willing was born in Newport, Rhode Island, Big deal, Newport. 
going to have a whole future series on Newport. This is a nice little intro into dipping into it. Ava Lowell Willing was born into a prominent Philadelphia family loaded with cash. Ava's parents were Edward Shippen Willing and Alice Barton Willing. Ava herself is a descendant of Edward Shippen, the second mayor of Philadelphia, also a chief justice of the Supreme Court of Philadelphia. Ava has two siblings. Both are prominent social figures during the Gilded Age. Her sister, Ava's sister, Susan Ridgway Willing, would go on to marry Francis Cooper Lawrence Jr. A little bit of a spider web here. Do y'all remember Consuelo Vanderbilt's first love, Winthrop Rutherford, who she really wanted to marry before her mom made her marry the Duke? Yeah, Winthrop Rutherford served as best man for Ava's sister, Susan Ridgway Willing, when she married Francis Cooper Lawrence Jr. It is on February 17th, all the way back in 1891, that Ava marries Colonel John Jacob Astor IV. He is known as Jack, Jack Astor. He is the son, Jack is, of William Backhouse Astor Jr. and Caroline Shermerhorn Astor. We've heard about them a bunch. Jack Astor, after a lot of very questionable romantic interests and dalliances, Caroline and William Backhouse are over the moon when Jack decides on Ava. She's beautiful. She comes from, quote, impeccable breeding and bloodlines, unquote. Everybody's happy about Jack and Ava. Among their wedding guests was, helpfully, so nice for the couple to start out with, a fully furnished townhouse on Fifth Avenue, diamonds from the groom's mother's jewelry case, so that's cool. Here's the weirdest wedding gift that I've ever heard of. (laughs) Jack and Ava also got a 44-gallon drum of semen. Jack does have a pretty intense interest in horses and horse breeding, but perhaps this semen, if it's whale semen, might have been used for lighting, torches, candle things, um, uh, oil. I can't come up with the word. Words are hard, y'all. Oil lamps, possibly. I'm hoping it's for that purpose and not much else. So Jack, remember, his parents are really thrilled about this because prior to Jack settling down with Ava, Jack had gained quite a reputation for, let's say, bumbling and urgent advances to women of his social class. Jack is seen as arrogant and awkward and just, he's, he's not cool. He's just not cool. Back in his young adulthood and his misspent teenage youth, Jack was part of a super highly publicized brawl with another young blue-blooded man named, you can't make this up, Beekman Kip Burrow. Doesn't Beekman Kip Burrow sound like a kid you'd really want to punch out on a bad night at the fraternity party? Beekman Kip Burrow. Anyway, Beekman Kip and Jack argued over which one of them should be able to sit next to the girl that they're both interested in. Beekman and Jack get into it 
culminating with the two young men going after each other, not only with their fists, but their expensive walking sticks as well before being separated. Like, this was hot news in the press. Regarding the argument, one newspaper comments, It's been a long time since any incident has occasioned so much amusement in society. This particular incident with Beekman Kip Burrow gives Jack a nickname that sticks with him for the rest of his life. That nickname is Jackass, often written as Jack Astor, A-S-S-T-O-R, Jackass. So you know what we're dealing with. Ava probably figures out what she's dealing with soon enough as their marriage is fairly miserable from the start, but Ava does her dynastic duty and produces a son immediately. Hence, the focus of this story, William Vincent Astor, was born just nine months after their wedding. And once that kid is especially a son, right, Ava, gonna focus on enjoying herself, as well as the wealth and lifestyle that that Astor name affords her. Ava just having the best old time. She's playing tennis and bridge. She goes skiing. She is super on fire about the new Mejong craze. Ava, to be fair, is self-indulgent, sharp-tongued, and extravagant. And you'd like to think you don't like Ava, but unlike her husband, Ava was delightfully spirited. She's down to earth. She lacks the stuffiness of the rest of the Astor's. Ava can often be spotted stopping in for a beer at the neighborhood saloon on her way home. Now, because Ava does love sports and recreational activities, oh, I love the spider web, she convinces her husband, Jack Astor, to have their good friend, you ready, Stanford White, build an athletic complex at Ferncliff. Ferncliff is the Astor Country Estate. The Ferncliff Casino, as it was known, included the first residential indoor swimming pool in the United States. You know, they're going to be going up against Marble House. That whole indoor first residential swimming pool also was made entirely of marble. The Ferncliff Casino also includes indoor tennis courts, a rifle range, a bowling alley, a billiard room, and helpfully guest bedrooms, designed by Stanford White. Now, what happens to the Ferncliff Casino? The Ferncliff Casino is eventually renamed Astor Courts and now hosts events. You can have your wedding or anniversary party or debutante ball there. Even Chelsea Clinton used Astor Courts as the venue for her 2010 wedding. And the thing, really, that Ava likes most, sure, Ferncliff Casino is pretty cool. Ava really likes the Aster money because it pays for the things she would like to do. But Ava has zero interest, goose eggs, in Jack Aster. A lot of wives, when they're disinterested in their very wealthy husbands, sometimes hide it very well. Not Ava. She is often unkind and insults Jack in front of not only their staff, but guests as well. Jack, no surprise, spends most of his time away from his wife Ava, but with their son Vincent, 
who Jack adores and Vinny adores Jack back. Ava, on the other hand, apparently has no fondness at all for motherhood. Ava calls Vinny her son stupid. She avoids him because he's clumsy. He has big feet. He reminds Ava of her husband, Jack. Now, to be fair, all toddlers are pretty clumsy, so I don't know how I feel about Ava with this one, but no worries. Jack is busy yachting because boats, boats, boats are a big deal with Jack Astor and building his real estate empire. Most notably, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, Jack and his cousin, William Waldorf Astor, are responsible for building the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, but Jack is involved in much of the development of New York City during his lifetime. Big real estate guy. Jack and Ava pretty much living entirely separate lives. They are even on different continents most of the time. The marriage is very much in name only. And Jack doesn't get divorced. His mom, Caroline Schirmerhorn Astor, is alive, and that's never going to work. So Jack stays married to Ava, at least out of respect for his mom's feelings and how she would feel about divorce and scandal. With all of that being said, it is not surprising that there is a great deal of speculation that when the couple has a second child, daughter Ava, Alice, born in 1902, really the rumors are going around that that just couldn't be Jack Astor's child because they weren't in the same continent for what you need to do to make a baby happen. Unsurprisingly, the birth of this new daughter does not ease the marital tensions between Jack and Ava. The couple will continue to live apart and finally begin divorce proceedings when Jack's mother, Caroline Astor, died in 1908. Oh goodness, trashy divorce for real, y'all. This divorce was a society sensation. It is much discussed and speculated about because the court seals the details. They're not letting any details of the case get out, which naturally causes a lot of press outrage, indicating to the public and the press that this, of course, is proof that the rich have special access to justice and privacy not provided to the normal population, which, again, our man Nick, totally into in his career, power, privilege, and justice does play different for the very rich. As was the custom of the day and required by law, because there was no such thing as a no-fault divorce in 1908, Jack Astor, in order to get his divorce, had to be accused of adultery, and the divorce was decreed in Ava's favor in 1910. Now, by this point, Vinnie Astor, their son, is no longer a minor and had been pretty much raised by his father throughout his life. No need to custody worry over Vinny. Their daughter Alice, however, was eight years old, and the court decided for Ava to raise Alice. Ava does pretty well in the divorce. Ava received an annual allowance of $50,000. This is approximately $1.4 million today, as well as an undisclosed settlement. 
rumored to be somewhere between two to three million dollars. This would be fifty-five million to eighty-five million today. So Ava's okay. Ava's not crying over the spilt milk of her marriage. Just a few days after her divorce is final, Ava boards the Lusitania for London. And Ava, remember, on different continents, spending the Astor money freely, having a real good time. Ava has been a society fixture in London and that scene in the high society set for years. And her marital prospects (laughs) had long been discussed even before she was divorced. Lord Curzon, the first Marquess of Kettleston and former Viceroy of India, he had recently been widowed and was supposedly the front runner for Ava's hand, but instead, coming out as the dark horse, Ava chooses Thomas Lister, the fourth Baron Ribsdale. Ava and Thomas Lister marry in 1919, and from that point on, Ava Willing Lowell Astor, forget that name, Ava's now known as Lady Ribsdale. Now, Ava was Lord Ribsdale's second wife, and Lady Ava, also kind of interesting here, was a bridesmaid at Princess Mary's wedding to Viscount LaSalle. Princess Mary is the sister of King Edward VIII and King George VI, Princess Mary. Now, Thomas Lister, Lord Ribsdale, was a wealthy, connected politician and aristocrat. He was also a very close friend and serves as Lord-in-waiting to Prime Minister William Gladstone. Lord Ribsdale, old Tommy, also serves as Master of the Buckhounds. This is a division of the Master of the Horse Department at the Royal Household. The Master of the Buckhounds is a pretty big deal as jobs go. The Master of the Buckhounds was responsible for overseeing the Royal Hunting Pack. (laughs) The title, actually Master of the Privy Buckhounds, was a role created just special For King Henry VIII back in 1528, although a role similar had existed since the time of King Edward III, but was a hereditary position, Henry VIII decides to make it a royally appointed position instead, most likely because he's kind of a jerk with a big ego. I don't know if y'all know this. I haven't talked about it. If y'all... Uh, Want a new fun history podcast about Trashy Royals? Go check out Trashy Royals. Stacy and I just launched that. We have a whole big episode that came out this morning about the War of the Roses. If you're into English history, y'all might want to check that out. I don't think I've mentioned it on Done and Done yet. Anyway, I can talk about English history all day. Some other notable previous Master of the Privy Buckhounds, y'all spiderwebs, include George Boleyn. This is Anne Boleyn's brother, John Dudley, Lord Robert Dudley, Charles Cornwallis, John Ponsby, Charles Cavendish. A lot of famous men held this particular Master of the Privy Buckhound title. Alas, in 1901, This position was abolished by the Civil List Act. What was the Civil List Act? 
It was there to appropriate the privy purse with what spending could come out of from the palace accounts. Kind of an interesting story, not for today. We're here to talk about Vinny Astor, and we're still talking about his mom, Ava, now Lady Ribsdale, who lives a very happy life with Lord Ribsdale and her daughter, Alice. They're going to split their time between their townhouse in Grubsner Square, that's in London, as well as Sutton Place. Sutton Place is the name of their country home in Surrey. Lord and Lady Ribsdale have no children together and do remain married until Lord Ribsdale's death in 1925. After Lord Ribsdale's death, Ava returns to the United States and reclaims her American citizenship. Ava, Lady Ribsdale, will pass away June the 9th 1958 in New York City with the majority of her estate going to her daughter Alice's four children. Little bit of an update here on Sutton Place. We are in coronation week here. Sutton Place is a Tudor manor home built by Sir Richard Weston. He is a courtier of Henry VIII. Sutton Place was built around 1525. The thing about this home, though, it is considered to be super important in the art history of England. It is the first example of an Italian Renaissance design. Sutton Place in 1525 sets the trend for what is about to come with Hampton Court, for how Tudor building is going to progress and develop over the next few decades. We're coming up on May. May is a big month as it is the anniversary of the murder of Anne Boleyn. Just another little spiderweb connection here. Richard Weston's only son, Sir Francis Weston, was executed in May 1536 for supposed adultery didn't happen, never happened with Queen Anne Boleyn. Sutton Place is purchased in 1959 by J. Paul Getty. J. Paul Getty in 1959 was the wealthiest private citizen in the world, at least in that year. Getty Oil Corporation sold Sutton Place after Getty's death, with Sutton Place now being owned by a Russian businessman, Alisher Yusmanov. All right, that's Lady Ribsdale, that's Vinny's mom. Let's go ahead and skippity doo to the next part of the story and talk about Madeline Talmadge force Aster Dick Fiermonte. So, Jack, now divorced. He divorces in 1910. After the divorce, old Jack Aster is going to go out, enjoy life, do yachting. He's going to spend time with his son Vincent, as well as entertain with his sister, at their mother's Bellevue Avenue Cottage in Newport. When I say Seaside Cottage, it's not. This home is called Beechwood. It is immense. It is incredible. We are going to be getting into all of Newport soon enough. Jack is increasingly seen with a young girl hanging out at Beechwood. This is a recent debutante and graduate of Miss Spence's School for Girls. Her name is Madeline Talmadge Force. Kind of creepy here. 
When they fall in love, Jack Astor is 46 years old and Madeline was 17 years old. Just to set this in perspective for you, little Madeline is a year younger than Jack Astor's son, Vincent. Madeline Talmadge Force was described as pretty, but not beautiful per se. Here's the real switch, though. Unlike Ava, Madeline is completely dazzled and charmed by everything Jack Astor does. Probably more so by his $100 million fortune, as well as Jack's brand new ocean-going steam yacht, and more hotels and skyscrapers than anyone else in the world. I mean, to be fair, Jack Astor is quite a catch. On November the 9th, 1911, Jack Astor and Madeline were married at Beechwood in Newport. He's in his late 40s. She's barely a teenager. Naturally, their marriage is not approved of by the upper class. But instead of being snubbed out by the upper class, Jack and Madeline are like, no problem. They go spend the winter months of 1911 and 1912 traveling in Europe as well as in a luxurious houseboat up and down the Nile. So, good times. Probably a good way to start your marriage. For Madeline, she soon learns that she is pregnant, and here Jack and Madeline decide to cut their extended vacation short and come on home. On April 10th, Jack and Madeline will travel to Southampton to board a boat for their journey back to New York City. That boat is the Titanic. When it becomes clear that the Titanic is sinking, John Jacob Astor IV, old Jack Astor, ushered his pregnant 18-year-old wife into the second-to-last lifeboat. Jack Astor's last words to his wife were reported to be, the sea is calm. You're in good hands. I'll see you in the morning. Jack Astor then helps passengers onto the last lifeboat and went back to the deck to wait for the inevitable. Supposedly, as Jack Astor watched his wife, Madeline's lifeboat, depart, Jack leaned against the ship's bar, lit a cigarette, and said, I asked for ice, but this is ridiculous. And truly, for whatever anyone thought of Jack Astor in his life, his last hours were filled with many fine and heroic actions. Jack Astor is credited for releasing the dogs from the Titanic kennels and willingly gives up his place on a lifeboat for someone else. Many, many wealthy men on the Titanic were allowed seats on lifeboats, before women and children of a lower class. But John Jacob Astor, Jack Astor, one of the richest men in the world, refused to take a seat at the expense of someone else. Jack Astor's body was found floating in its life jacket and with soot encrusting his face and body. This led to the conclusion that instead of drowning, Jack was actually killed instead by the toppling of one of the ship's giant smokestacks. Jack Astor had a will, and in that will, he left the bulk of his estate to his son, Vincent. Vincent Astor 
would travel to Halifax to identify his father's body. Vincent Astor would also carry the gold watch his father was wearing when he died with him, Vinny, for the rest of his life. Six months after the Titanic sank, Madeline would give birth to a son whom she named after her late husband. This child is called Jackie, but dubbed the Titanic baby by the press. Madeline will continue to live in their Fifth Avenue mansion, but four years later, she will marry her former sweetheart. His name is William Dick. This was not a smart financial move for Madeline at all because in Jack Astor's will, he stipulated that Madeline would lose her $5 million trust fund as well as the use of that Fifth Avenue mansion if Madeline remarried. Jackie Astor, their son, received a trust fund of $5 million that he would gain control of when he reached 18. The disparity between what Jackie Astor gets and what Vinnie Astor has is quite large. Jack Astor would have rewritten his will, more than likely for a son had Madeline had a son when Jack was still alive, but nobody knew the sex of that child. Five million is all Jackie Astor gets. Madeline and William Dick will go on to have two sons together, but divorce in 1933. Four months after Madeline's divorce, no worry, she's going to get married again, this time to Enzo Firmonte, an Italian actor and boxer. Enzo and Madeline have no children together, and they divorced in 1938. Madeline sadly dies very young. At the very tender age of 47, Madeline passes away in Palm Beach, Florida, from a heart condition. Okay, so that's Vincent Astor's mother and his stepmother, even though she was a year younger than him. Let's go ahead and talk about the link to Brooke Astor, Vinnie Astor's third wife. So the sinking of the Titanic makes Vincent Astor one of the wealthiest men in the United States. He reportedly inherits $87 million. This is a close to $2.5 billion today. A lot of cash. A lot of money. According to the last Mrs. Astor, Brooke Astor would acknowledge to her friends that the sinking of the Titanic had altered the course of her life. Many people do believe, just talked about it, that if John Jacob Astor IV had reached New York on the Titanic voyage, that Jack would have rewritten his will to include more for Madeline and to split the majority of his fortune between his two sons. As it was, the will stipulated for $5 million to go to his daughter, Ava Alice, and $5 million to the unborn baby, still not knowing if it was a son, and the rest of that 87 million smackaroos go into Vincent. Now, remember, Vincent Astor got the mumps when he was very young and was sterile, so he had no children. Vincent will take a third and final wife, Brooke Astor. 
the Vincent Astor Foundation was created with the sole purpose of quote-unquote alleviating human misery. So when Vincent Astor dies in 1959, only six years after he and Brooke Astor get married, Vincent will leave his entire fortune to Brooke, his widow, as well as the Vincent Astor Foundation. Now, this is what's remarkable about this story. Brooke Astor had been chosen by Minnie Cushing, remember the second wife of Vincent Astor, to marry him when Minnie no longer wanted to be married to him. Like, remember with Minnie and Vinny, they have an adulterous affair for years. He finally gets a divorce from Helen. Helen is out of the picture. Minnie and Vinny marry, but what was that, 1940, they get married by 1953, they're out? Yeah. The romance, the marriage wasn't as good as the affair. Minnie (laughs) is friends with Brooke, and she's like, man, Vincent Astor will only divorce me if I find a new wife for him. And to be fair, Vincent was known to have a difficult personality. Minnie's like, seriously, man, I just want a divorce. And Vinny's like, okay, but you got to find me a new wife. I don't want to die alone. Brooke had been divorced once and widowed once. And Brooke was really happy to step up and take on the role of Mrs. Astor. Remember, Vincent Astor dies in 1959. Brooke Astor, his widow, goes on to reign as the philanthropic queen of high society for decades, almost five decades. Brooke Astor outlives her husband by 48 years. She passes away in 2007 at the age of 105. Sadly, Brooke Astor's Legacy is somewhat clouded by the elder abuse allegations as well as the estate tampering conviction of her only son. We're going to go long today, friends, because I've got our man Nick actually writing about Brooke Astor. This is from October 2006 from Vanity Fair in a Dominic Dunn column called Saving Mrs. Astor. There is a whole big deal in the front. I'm skipping down to the Brooke Astor part of this story. From our man Nick. Speaking of high drama, one of the saddest stories in New York these days is the revelation of the reportedly squalid circumstances in which 104-year-old Brooke Astor was reduced to living. The July 26, 2006 headline in the New York Daily News printed on a vivid pink background, stunned the city. Disaster for Mrs. Astor. It had been a long time since the telephones in New York, Southampton, Newport, and Northeast Harbor buzzed the way they did that day. Philip Marshall, 58, a son of Mrs. Astor's only child, Anthony Marshall, 82, by his first wife, filed a petition against his father, to whom he was not close, claiming that he had, quote, turned a blind eye to her, intentionally and repeatedly ignoring her health, safety, personal, and household needs, while enriching himself with millions of dollars, unquote. Most people were shocked. Some were not. 
for the last couple of years on the few occasions when I dined with members of Mrs. Astor's rarefied circle, I would hear them say, Poor Brooke, it's so sad. I thought they were referring to the state of her health, but it was the state of her living arrangements that concerned them. On the front page of the Daily News was also a photograph of Mrs. Astor as New York remembers her, dressed in her signature straw hat with the caption, Sun Forces Society Queen to Live on Peas and Porridge in Dilapidated Park Avenue Duplex. There were many sordid details in the story. Torn nightgowns, a urine-smelling sofa for a bed, a famous painting, Childi Hassam's flags, Fifth Avenue, sold off her library wall. She had not been seen much in public since her 100th birthday party, given for 100 of her best friends by David Rockefeller, a man who hates publicity, but who had uncharacteristically come forward to assume a large role in the Grimm family saga. Philip Marshall had requested that his father be removed as his grandmother's guardian and replaced by Annette de la Renta, the socialite wife of the designer Oscar de la Renta, who has enjoyed a long, close friendship with Mrs. Astor. Like David Rockefeller, Annette de la Renta is a reluctant public figure. Both she and Rockefeller have declined to speak to anyone in the press, but a person close to her told me she had said, quote, David and I are guided by the judge. As a guardian, I will make certain that her last days are lived in dignity and complete comfort, unquote. Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, also spoke out in favor of Mrs. De La Renta's assuming the care of Mrs. Astor. In the past decade, Brooke Astor has become one of New York's most revered figures. Since the death of Vincent Astor, her third husband, in 1959, she has given approximately $200 million to the city of New York and to many of its charities and paid frequent visits to the barrios and slums to see the uses to which her generosity was put, always dressed as if she were going to lunch at the Colony Club. I have never been more than an acquaintance of Mrs. Astor's. We had Vanity Fair in common because she occasionally contributed charming articles, mainly about social customs and manners to the magazine. Even though she often told me to call her Brooke, I always called her Mrs. Astor, feeling that her age and her position demanded that. When you were with her, you felt you were in the presence of a great star. She always wore beautiful dresses and major jewels. Even after she turned 90 years old, she had glamour, and as the first lady of New York's society and philanthropy, she understood and enjoyed her presence. I had dinner at her apartment twice. It was very ritzy, and the guests were very prominent. She liked talking to the guys. The late social figure, Jackie Pierpont, once gave a party for her at the Knickerbocker Club, where she was the only woman. She loved it. 
At that time, she had an enormous and innocent crush on Charlie Rose, the PBS television interviewer who was committed to another lady. Once she said to me, Oh, I was mad, simply mad about Brian Ahern, referring to the urbane English movie star of the 40s and 50s. After I wrote the novel People Like Us about New York society in the 1980s, I stopped being asked to Mrs. Astor's dinners. Several of my friends are very unhappy with you, she told me. But I went to her 90th birthday party at the Armory on Park Avenue, and I often ran into her at benefits, such as Literary Lions at the New York Public Library. She gave witty speeches and toasts, and people absolutely loved her. I have based a character named Adele Harcourt in a solo act, my novel in progress, on Brooke Astor. This book that Dominic Dunn is talking about, a solo act, is referring to Too Much Money about Lily Safra. That book opens with the funeral of Adele Harcourt, Dunn's stand-in in fiction for Brooke Astor. Just like uh, Bobo Rockefeller was Van Degen in The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. If you know who Dunn's talking about, it's pretty easy to decode. Adele Harcourt is Brooke Astor. In the book so far, she is the endearing establishment figure the city knows so well. I don't know how I'm going to deal with her current situation, which would cause her heartbreak, if she were still in possession of all of her faculties, but at 104, she is reportedly not. For several years, in the early 90s, I went for short vacations to the Astaku Inn in Northeast Harbor, Maine. It's a great place to write and a lovely part of the world, and I had friends there. During one of those vacations, I had an experience that meant little at the time, but that suddenly takes on a new, fuller meaning. It was a Saturday afternoon, and a large wedding reception was being held in the lobby and on the verandas of the inn. A woman came up and introduced herself and her husband to me. She said she was the mother of the bride, and invited me to join in the reception. Their names, she said, were Anthony and Charlene Marshall. I didn't instantly pick up that Tony, as everybody seemed to call him, was Brooke Astor's son, but then Charlene announced it. I stayed at the reception for half an hour and had a very nice time. Mrs. Astor, I noticed, was not present. The bride was Charlene's daughter by her former marriage. I had no way of knowing that day that the marriage of Charlene and Anthony Marshall had created a major scandal in the fancy community of Northeast Harbor. Charlene had been married to the Episcopal minister at the church where Mrs. Astor worshipped. She had suddenly run off with the recently divorced Tony Marshall, leaving her husband and three children behind. Now I have no place to go to church, a mortified Mrs. Astor was quoted as saying at the time. Apparently, Charlene had been reunited with her children. As for her ex-husband, the humiliated minister, 
He moved to South Carolina and remarried twice. When Mrs. Astor didn't appear at her daughter-in-law's daughter's wedding that day, I assumed she was ill. That night, however, I went to dinner at Jackie and Nancy Pierpont's cottage. It was an Edith Wharton evening. All the grandees of Northeast Harbor were there, including Susan Mary Alsup, the Washington Grand Dame. During dinner, I said, I went to the wedding reception of Mrs. Astor's daughter-in-law's daughter at the inn this afternoon. Not one person at the table responded, and someone quickly changed the subject. A friend of mine in Old Lyme, Connecticut, told me, Tony Marshall was in my class at Brooks. The first year he was called Anthony Cuser, which was the name of his mother's first husband, John Dryden Cuser, a rich drunk who had been abusive to Brooke. The following year, Anthony changed his name to Tony Marshall after Mrs. Astor's second husband, Charles Marshall, with whom she was completely happy. She married Vincent Astor 11 months after Marshall's death. Vincent Astor left Brooke with a great fortune. She has distributed philanthropically to New York City institutions. Several years ago, Tony, a World War II Marine hero and a former ambassador to Kenya, formed a theatrical production company with Charlene, and they have won two Tonys. After running into them at Swifties one night, that would be Swifty Lazar, I saw one of their plays, I Am My Own Wife, about a transvestite living in Nazi Germany. It was excellent, though not at all the sort of play I would have expected. The playwright, Douglas Wright, won a Pulitzer Prize for it. The Marshall's partner in the production, David Richtenthal, until recently had an office in Mrs. Astor's apartment. Richtenthal has defended Anthony Marshall to the press. One can only guess that his own son has his own emotional agenda, he said to the New York Times. What has shocked me more than the litany in the press of the neglect and deprivation that Astor has suffered was the firing by Anthony Marshall of the highly respected law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, which had overseen Astor's fortune and welfare for 40 years. He replaced the firm with a friend of his named Francis X. Morrissey Jr., who had been suspended for practicing law for two years in the 1990s for, quote, mishandling a client's account and trying to profit improperly from a friend's estate, unquote. The New York Times, which uncovered the Astor story on a daily basis for weeks, reported on August the 4th, under the direction of Mr. Marshall, hundreds of thousands of dollars have flowed in recent years from Mrs. Astor's accounts to Delphi Productions, his three-year-old theater production company, to finance Broadway productions. Mr. Marshall, who said his mother was aware of the investments in his company, is Delphi's chairman. Mr. Morrissey sits on its board and is an investor. On Monday, August 7th, 
an individual from the public relations firm Citygate Sard Verbinen called Vanity Fair, saying it represented Mr. and Mrs. Anthony Marshall and would like to offer me an exclusive interview with the couple who felt they were being maligned in the press and wanted to tell their side of the story. The public relations person said they wanted me to go through Mrs. Astor's apartment in order to see that she had not been living in squalor. I was leaving the next day for Scotland to see my 16-year-old granddaughter act the role of Cecily in The Importance of Being Earnest at the Edinburgh Festival, but I said I would be back on Saturday and could interview the Marshalls on Sunday. I'm going to interview Charlene and Tony Marshall, I told a friend. My very tuned-in friend replied, They approached the Charlie Rose Show, too, you know. The whole time I was in Scotland, I made notes of the questions I would ask the Marshalls, starting with what happened to the millions from the sale of the Childy Hassam painting. Printed reports had varied from $8 million to $15 million. The day I left for Scotland, a new development in the scandal was revealed in the New York Daily News. According to the paper, Francis X. Morrissey had hired a criminal lawyer after Attorney General Elliot Spitzer's office had, quote, demanded answers from Morrissey, 63, about a charity connected to Astor that he had never registered with the state, unquote. The Shepherd Community Foundation, it turned out, had been created by Charlene Marshall with a $100,000 donation from Astor. The plot thickened on August 11th when the New York Times published a letter from Harvey E. Korn and Kenneth E. Warner, lawyers for the Marshalls, complaining of the unfair coverage their clients were receiving. Quote, The insinuation in your editorial that only now is Anthony Marshall's mother, Brooke Astor, being properly cared for is unfair. Unquote. Of the 16 letters to the editor that day, this one was printed next to last. The day before I left Edinburgh to return to New York was the day of the foiled terrorist plan to kill several thousand people in up to 10 places bound for the United States. That day, too, Corn and Warner contacted Vanity Fair and canceled my interview with the Marshals. When I got back to my apartment late Saturday afternoon, I telephoned the Marshals. Charlene answered, It's Dominic, I said. I'm on another call, she said. Let me get rid of it. She seemed surprised to hear my voice. Is it true that you're not going to do the interview? Yes, she said. I'm so sorry. The lawyers think it's just not the right time for us to tell our side of the story. A few years ago, Mrs. Astor signed over her beautiful house in Northeast Harbor to her son. Shortly thereafter, Marshall deeded the house to Charlene, which was viewed as a terrible insult to his mother's generosity. Although Astor was probably aware of the transfer of the property, most people close to the situation wonder if she would have ever given it to her son if she had known he was going to give it to his wife. Charlene has never been in good standing with her mother-in-law. Her recent comments quoted in the press 
such as, quote, not everyone has a Park Avenue apartment, not everyone has eight servants, unquote, have done nothing to endear her to Mrs. Astor's friends. And when the great lady dies, which could be any minute, imagine how difficult the funeral's going to be with legions of her friends not speaking to her son and his wife. Brooke Astor does pass away in August of 2007, just a little less than a year after this piece was published by Dominic. Again, Dominic Dunn will use Adele Harcourt in his final novel, Too Much Money, the big scene taking place at Adele Harcourt's funeral. His Romana Clay, in fictional form, Adele Harcourt, Brooke Astor. This is not the only time we're going to hear about Brooke Astor, but I figured it was a great time to get into all of that Astor nonsense as it connects William Vincent Astor into our current investigation. When you know, you know. Holy cats, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. Monday is going to be bringing us Sunday for you, early ad free, the last of our High Society six of Truman Swans. Be on the lookout for that. I'm wishing everybody the most incredible weekend. Thank you for your support and being awesome. And literally, I just ah, adored the heck out of all of you. Until we meet again, angels, stay curious and keep on investigating. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.